Loved this episode, Billy. Episode 58, Blade Runner and Neurodiversity opened my eyes to a lot of things here, particularly what you did with the film, but on the topic of neurodiversity. What are people going to learn this week? Yeah, I think um, the experience that a lot of kids have that we see in clinic, um, what's kind of going on. Um, yeah, I think I tied it pretty well to Blade Runner. I've got to keep remembering to look at the camera. <laughs> but yeah, so great, great episode. And I think you were really valuable at kind of unpicking some of the questions so um, that I think a lot of people will have who don't have a direct experience with this. Totally. And I can't wait for the questions that are going to come in for part two of this episode. So if you're listening to it this week, the week we release, uh, make sure you send your questions through on Instagram at popcultureparenting or popcultureparenting on Gmail. They make a great part of episode two that we, um, we love those questions. So send them through, guys. Billy, thanks heaps. Guys, enjoy the episode. Hi. I'm Billy, a developmental paediatrician. And I'm Nick, a developing parent. We're going to use scenes from iconic movies to talk about how we best support our kids. This is Pop Culture Parenting. Hey, don't let your mother smell that beer on your breath. She'll take it out on me. Daddy, and what does he do? Just use your best judgment, we trust you. Good morning, Dr. Billy Garvey. How are you today? I'm good, Nick. How are you going? Good. I think before I hit record, I did say this is the best part of the week. Yes. The recording yeah. part of the show. The yeah. best part. Yeah, it's heaps of fun, isn't it? Arguably the easy part. The, there's no, there's no, you don't need to carve out any more time now. We've, we've aligned. The moons have aligned. Yes. We've found the time to hit record. We and have, and like, I'm, I'm very excited for this one as well. Yes, so. it is an exciting episode. We are up to episode 58, Billy. Mm. 58. 58. And we are doing Blade Runner and Neurodiversity. Now we're going to unpack that in a bit. I know you're really excited. I can tell you've got this energy about you. Well, this I'm just week. going to see if I can pull it off. <laughs> I had to choose between this movie and another one, and I chose the harder path. <laughs> As um, is it Frost? Oh, the path look, least. <laughs> the path least would have trodden. Um, I won't say it's a nervous energy. I'm saying it's an energy that's excited. <laughs> you yeah. are excited. I can Potentially tell. a soapbox coming. I can never tell when they're truly going to come, but I haven't done one oh, in a while. So. I'm going to prompt it out here. <laughs> so we'll I see. love a soapy box. <laughs> Brilliant. How are you, Billy? So we are kicking off with um, our Griswolds and Winslows this week. So how uh, how's your week been? Really good, actually. Yeah, I um, yeah, I've had a good week. I was back in town and kind of yeah, had a beautiful moment. This I'm going to use um, pass my Griswold Winslow off to a listener, oh. but um, just had a really good time. Had the first time ever that picked Evie up yesterday and just doing the the wave goodbye to everyone. She's got a bit of a Pope Royal wave <laughs> as she's rolling out of there. And feeling a bit guilty about how often she's there, but then she was like, bye Flynn. And I was oh. like, wow, it's the first time I've... She doesn't know many names and one of the kids there. So I was like, oh, how good's that? Quick connection. So, yeah. Been back, what, two weeks? Yeah, yeah. So who knows? It's um, it's great. It makes me feel really good about it. But yeah, good week. Um, mate, we got some some beers with other dads. That was great. That was good, yes. Um, Mental health check. That's how I was framing it up. <laughs> yes. It's just the truth. Yeah. I wasn't even drinking, but I uh, headed along. <laughs> yeah. And then we got the clans together to a big pool. Yeah. It was chaos. <laughs> it's about 200 kids. <laughs> I was feeling for that one lifeguard. <laughs> Just watching all of them. <laughs> that one lifeguard Bill is referring to did kick me out of the unbusy pool at one stage. I was trying to do a little mock swim lesson. And he goes, mate, this is for swim lessons only. I was like, mate, what am I doing? And he was like, out. I was like, all right. <laughs> but yeah, it's good fun. So how's your week been? Yeah, not too bad. No dramas at all. I might... um get into the Griswolds and Winslows, the technical side of things. Are you cool with that? Yeah, go for it. All right. Got no Winslows, so here we go. Hey, don't let your mother smell that beer on your breath. She'll take it out on me. <laughs> um, so my Griswold this week is that, um, and I'm going to be hard on myself because I know better. Um, we've just gone through a two-part episode on co-parenting. Having learned a lot about co-parenting is and doing it with a partner is part of co-parenting. Um I uh, found one of the key cornerstones of it was about positive reinforcement for your partner and a bit of empathy. And I found that I had at stages a bit of an underlying shittiness and attitude that was really unfounded. And I caught myself at the end of the day just going, why have I been (coughs) shitty? Like things hadn't gone perfectly. 
and it was like I frankly hadn't been great in the moment a couple of times. Don't want to go into details. Nothing. There's no real key things to it. But yeah. I was like, oh, well, this just isn't, you know, God, what are we doing here? You know, and I was like, I think what we're doing here is our best. I don't think anyone's deliberately not doing something. And I thought after two episodes of talking about this, I still, in that first week after it, I just caught myself being like a bit of a brat. And I was like, that is rank. And and it wasn't good. Like it wasn't good. I was just like, you know, I was busy, under pressure, all those sorts of things. And just the day and just things happened. But I was like, I reflected at the end of the day, I was like, I have not been like a great partner in parts of those moments. And I was like, that's not good enough. And I couldn't believe, I feel like I have to go back and listen to the two hours of the episodes to check back in a bit because, uh, yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, I'm sitting here going, are you me? <laughs> I, um, yeah, that's the hard thing about it. You and I often between episodes talk about what we're trying to do here. And I think the hardest thing is that it's constant work. It's not like... I'll practice the golf swing every so often. Hopefully my <laughs> handicap gets better. It's, um, you know, every minute of every day is on the golf course and you've got to like, yeah, you've got to keep working on it. And it's it's hard, mate. But that's where the evidence is, is that what do you, what you do about it now? So you've taken the first often hardest step is like reflection on it. Mm. And then what do you do practically that's going to protect you and everyone around you from that being detrimental to your future? Yeah. But hard stuff. I'm doing it too. Like I'm talking to families all day about it. I get home and I can't do it. So <sighs> it's it's tough stuff. But you you know, you keep trying and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the pursuit of perfection in Blade Runner. <laughs> but um <laughs> but yeah, it's really it's really important that we keep trying, you know, we keep trying to improve and get better. And the only way, like without getting too um that getting too like personal improvement, you know, life coachy. It's oh. the only growth is growth you can do with yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. We can't expect anyone else to change or anyone else to do stuff differently. But yeah, it's really hard, isn't it? Because yeah, you often sit back there and go, "Oh man, that's not cool. That's not the best of me." Really wasn't. Mm. And my yeah, my um, Griswold and Winslow actually segues quite well into that. <laughs> okay. Because I've go. got a listener who mm. sent in an email. I'm hoping you didn't see it yet because that's why I'm reading it and I'm terrible at reading stuff out, which is why you do it. <laughs> but um, let's see how it goes. So this is a amazing um, listener who's sent this in and has um, said, gentlemen, this is a splendid podcast, which is nice. We get lots of positive feedback. I don't think we've ever been told we're splendid, but I'll take it. Um, I'm learning a lot and chuckling along the way. Thank you. A few weeks ago, my daughter, let's call her Billy, because it's such a great name for either child, anyone who's expecting, <laughs> um, blew me away with her perspective on things that changed mine. It's also reminded me of how much of a dickhead I can be. Uh, I wonder if you could do an episode on how not to pass on your own dickheadery to our kids, or perhaps that will be the ultimate result of all your episodes, the story. Billy and I pretended to race all the time, and she's super competitive, or so I thought. I asked her if she wanted to win her school sports day race. She said no, that she wasn't fast enough. Even if she was fast enough, she wouldn't want to. She likes her friends to win because she sees that it makes them happy. Cue my brain shutting down. I was prepped to give her a big pep talk about picking up her game, but after those few words, I didn't know what to say. I was too scared I might tarnish her beautiful way of seeing things. I just gave her a big hug and started to think about how not to pass on my antiquettery. Thanks again. Cheers. So yeah, maybe you hadn't seen that, but I just thought it was beautiful. I hadn't seen that. And um, like what amazing restraint by the parent, I reckon, to do that. Like I can see, oh, I'm with you. <laughs> I'd be like, really? Do you really want him to win? Let's put the foot down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I could see it happening. Yeah. And the person, the parents caught themselves. How good. But I wonder if what your um, Griswold was, you know, I often feel about that. I don't want to pass on the bad bits of things <laughs> to Evie. <laughs> Shit, no. And even like what you're talking about, that frustration and like and that's a hard thing. We talk about how much role modelling is for our kids and how much it will influence their future behaviour outside of the pep talks we give them. But it's hard, isn't it? Because you just beat yourself up and then you're like, oh, man, I really hope that I'm not passing this on. And it's, yeah. So maybe we should, given the fact that we're both pausing a little bit too much, do a future rep just on that. Yeah, I think we need to come back. <laughs> this, this isn't a module that's been completed. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's... Uh, Needs to be reflected upon and worked on. 
Yeah, but I reckon the listener's right. That's what we're trying to do. We're yeah. trying to have growth on ourselves, but a big part of it is how do we, how do we, you know, give better parts of ourselves to our kid and shield mm. them from the bad bits. Mm. I'm interested in the Winslow. I want to finish on a high. So what is the Winslow we've got coming from someone oh, else? To be honest, he gave it as a jewel because he saw the Winslow in his daughter. So, which I agree, it's a beautiful um, sign of empathy that his daughter's showing wanting the other kids to win, mm-hmm. which is actually a very nice segue into Blade Runner. Okay, it because is. Because what is the first scene in Blade Runner? The first scene in Bla- first scene in Blade Runner. Like, why are you all of a sudden testing me? What I can't think now. It's fine. I'm frozen yeah, I on the actually spot. don't expect you to know the answer. It was the one that it was like I'd look really clever because I'd have the answer and you wouldn't. Yeah, but it's essentially an empathy test. <laughs> oh, of course so it the is. First Sorry, thing yeah, that happens of is an empathy test. Yeah, and, then, and he and not, he definitely doesn't pass. Well, he he passes his own way. <laughs> so one of the things we do in clinic mm. is test empathy. We're really? trying to figure out, yeah. So one of the hallmarks that people would say on a superficial level of autism is, or other elements of neurodiversity, mm-hmm. is that empathy is lacking. Okay. We're going to go on to that again, but I just want to signal it because it's how the movie starts and this movie is a phenomenal movie. I said to you before we shot that often I spend so much time thinking about these movies <laughs> that I get pretty sick of them and I haven't gotten to that point in Blade Runner despite thinking about it for a few hours every day for the last two weeks. <laughs> so amazing movie. I don't know what does Blade Runner mean anything to you? It's How funny. do you feel about I'll it? I'll be honest, I missed Blade Runner kind of at the time and through high school. So where we are in Australia, it's such a studied film in film studies mm. and I just I took media and did film studies and stuff like that through school. But I actually, I don't know, the year they decided not to do Blade Runner, um, <laughs> yeah, well. know, I didn't do it. But mm. that's how so many people see it, I think, because it's such a studied film for storytelling um, and technique as well because of Ridley Scott and what he did in it. Um, so I sort of got into it late, like you know, like probably five years ago is when I first saw it for the first time. So I didn't, didn't yeah. watch it when I was younger, didn't have an impact as I was a teen. Um, and I still have so many questions. And the problem is my partner, Henrietta, she loves the film. I'd say it's probably her favourite film and she's read the book as well. So she loves it. She loves the whole discussion around, it, you know, what is you know, real and I'm sure we'll get into all those sorts of things and, you know, what is life, what does it mean to be living and all those sorts of things. And so all I have when I watch it with her is question after question about what does that mean? What is the dove? <laughs> what is? What are yeah, all the well, things in it? We might we'll, talk about the dove. We will. Yeah. We will. I'm sure. But it's like it's so much. It's the most symbolism, symbol, you know, symbolism heavy film ever. I reckon. There's yeah, so it is, much. and it gets away with being a bit cliched because of how good it is. Um, for people who don't know the plot, just in case, well, shout out to the people that are like <laughs> we hear, we see what the film is, watch the film before as a partner, as you know, a couple, <sighs> and then that's really nice to hear people are doing that. I like it. But just in case, it's. A classic sci-fi dystopian it was um, a 1982 set in 2019 <laughs> LA and there is Blade Runners are people that are hunting down replicants replicants are artificially designed uh, beings that are usually used off-world so we've gone interplanetary and they are used off-world um, and they're kind of segregated away. They mm. are different. They are others. And we're going to talk about why that sits within a neurodiversity yep. framework. And what the movie is about is that Deckard or Harrison Ford has been tasked with tracking down a number of them that mm-hmm. have returned to Earth. Mm-hmm. And we're going to we'll, – I'll cue the scene, but it's this – Amazing kind of sci-fi, you know, detective oh. film noir as we yep. were looking into yep. um, movie that um, Philip K. Dick wrote back in the sixties. Now yeah. I don't know if you know any of the other. Do you know the other big movies he's done? No. What else? So Total Recall, Minority <sighs> Report, with him as well. So he Total was, Recall. Yeah. So he sci-fi is interesting. I think sci-fi can often get put in the basket of fantasy, but sci-fi really purposefully explores a lot of themes within the lens of in the future Mm -hmm. with a scientific basis, what will things look like, how will we feel about things. Now, what Philip K. Dick often explored was what does it mean to be human Mm -hmm. and also what does – there's there's always a different perspective to things. There's not one perspective on everything. Mm. Now, he had a pretty wild life, which we won't go into too much, but he oh. notoriously disliked every write of this film, every script that was written except for the last one. He actually died right before 
it was released. Oh. But he actually saw that he liked the last script that a guy I think David Peoples wrote and he saw a little bit of the imagery and said, this is the world as I imagined it. And he, so it was a beautiful way for him to send it off. Ridley Scott did a lot with it. Harrison Ford and him famously got on terribly during this movie and in a lot of interviews talked about Ridley Scott says he was the most difficult person to work with. Ford said this was his worst career experience. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's it was this real change in what we see of Ford. It's amazing that we haven't used Ford before because he's in two of the biggest franchises of our childhood in Star Wars and Indiana Jones. But... The movie is phenomenal. We're going to have to talk about Rutger. He's phenomenal as Roy, the replicant. The scene will come. Daryl Hannah is beautiful oh, in it as well. Amazing. So Daryl Hannah has a scene which I almost picked, which is a beautiful demonstration of neurodiversity where she's waiting for Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. So she's waiting outside of his apartment block for him to come because he's going to be the way to get to the top dog, the guy that's designed them all to try and change them. Yep. All the replicants have a built-in code which says in their DNA they'll only live for four years. So what they're trying to do is live longer, which is, you know, they are seen as these kind of inferior other beings, but they, and we'll talk about it a bit more in the scene, but they're trying to prolong this experience that they're having in the world because they... Uh, having this rich kind of engagement with sensations and we'll see the scene, we'll just demonstrate that. Daryl Hannah's character, Pris, is waiting outside and the Sebastian, who's the human, gets startled. Mm. And you can see she beautifully does a thing that a lot of um, children that we see and adults with neurodiversity is she mimics him. She pretends that she was scared as well and Daryl Hannah is autistic. So she, you know, probably put a lot of herself and her own experience into this role. We also see her, she's classically impulsive, she's jumping around, she can't resist touching all of the things in Sebastian's house, she's doing cartwheels everywhere. This is a classic kind of neuro, atypical neurodiverse person. Just one thing, you said... Daryl Hannah's character is autistic? No, the actress. Yeah. The actress is autistic? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she's come okay. out and done a lot in the advocacy space. And, yeah, yeah. Mm. And we're going to talk about what neurodiversity means. But I yeah. think there's so much in this movie. Um, I don't know if you remember Rachel, obviously, you yeah. know, that he falls for Rachel. Rachel at the start is really frozen up, isn't she? Yep. She's, like, cold and calculated and snappy. Mm-hmm. But then when she realises she's different and why she feels different. Mm. We see her let her hair down, play piano, and her relationships (laughs) start to bloom. And that's what we are trying to do in clinic is unlock um, neurodiversity. A lot of what happens with people, and we see this in the film, is they are searching for themselves and society is saying you have to be a certain way. Okay. Now, Deckard is a classic human who is trying to not show emotions we see no human connection or relationship in any of the characters where do we see the emotions and the relationships and the you know companionship and looking after each other it's the replicants isn't it yep. they look after each other they try and protect each other they seek justice when something's done to wrong one of them they are sad when one of them passes we see none of that in the humans because what Blade Runner does is it challenges what it is to be a human. Yep. And it's neurodiversity needs to be something that we celebrate and unlock as a community. So that's yep. kind of where the, the challenge is in, the, in society. But Blade Runner perfectly shows it to us and we'll, we'll have the pinnacle of that as our scene. Cool. Can you tell me what does neurodiversity mean? Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, what does diversity mean? What do you think diversity is? Uh, differences between people is a yeah. cultural diversity is what I think about. Yeah. When you say that, I'm like, oh, So it has nothing diversity. to do with superiority or, no, no, or no. something being different. better than – it's just different, isn't it? Yeah. So all neurodiversity means is that different ways of thinking and feeling and experiencing things, it's just the brain bit of diversity, is that all of our brains are different. That's all neurodiversity is. So it just exists – So, sorry, yeah, neurodiversity exists. So we're all... We all think about things differently. We have different ways to process the experiences that we have. We have different strengths and weaknesses in our cognitive abilities, the way we think about things. You're really good at maths. I'm terrible at it. Like that's a neurodiversity between us. Yeah. Okay. It's But then 
okay, so then, but then at certain points, people within that diversity get um, uh, classified, not classified, yeah, yeah, like no, diagnosed you, with a certain yes. part of diversity. So we we in clinical practice who do mental health and developmental stuff, and yeah. a lot of people that listen that do this, we look for neurodiversity but not to change it, not to cure it. Neurodiversity is not something wrong. It's a vulnerability that exists in the kids that we see because society and culture sits around and says this is the way we expect you to be. Right. And if you really struggle to sit for 60 minutes as a 10-year-old in a classroom – because you have a different way of processing the world, things get really tough. But it's not your neurodiversity that's the cause of that. It's the expectations in society that sit around you. Got you. Because the way, like on mass education, you need you need like a middle ground, like a ground where you can try and educate the masses. And then, yeah, I mean, it would be great. Kind of totally. It'd be great if it was a middle ground, but it's really just that it suits the majority. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah w- sorry. We don't no, find no, a middle no, ground. No, no, no. Yeah. No, gotcha. 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 You're describing what I think a lot of people f- feel about it. So it is, it's interesting. A lot of people will think about neurodiversity as autism, ADHD, yeah. dyslexia, That's bipolar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, I think that the neurodiversity community and advocacy groups, this is um, from a long time ago, decades ago, I think it was Judy Singer came up with it, the term and was using it for the avenue of inclusion, saying like we, are, we have a strong neurodiverse community that causes exclusion because mm. of certain groups of kids and adults will have different ways that they process things yeah. and we kind of intentionally, you know, unfortunately sometimes but often unintentionally make life harder for them than it needs to be. Yeah. Now that's where the trouble comes from. It's not, you know, kids with ADHD, you know, we, we don't treat ADHD, we don't treat autism, we don't treat dyslexia we don't treat those things what we treat it no what we do is we try and uncover the reason for the anxiety the behavioral problems the reasons that they're not learning as well as they could be they're not reaching their potential but a lot of what we're trying to do is not take away that part of the identity we try and make the tough bit smaller you really struggle to learn with your peers in a school environment you really struggle to understand the intricacies of social communication because you're you're on the spectrum but we don't want to change who you are we want to try and give you the opportunity to have rich relationships despite a different way that you communicate with your peers just a different route Different route, but a lot of it is what we call accommodations and adjustments in yeah. the environment they're in. Accommodations and adjustments, explain that. So, so it's not... Or so give an example so of that. So yeah, an example of it that's really easy to understand is kids and adults that need glasses, we don't say try harder or squint, you know. <laughs> we say, yeah, cool, you need glasses, you know, and that's not a weakness in that person. That's an adjustment that we make. Yeah, asthma. Yeah, Just asthma. breathe better. Yeah, yeah. So what the problem is that in, you know, ADHD or autism or dyslexia or whatever, we don't recognise that that is a difference that we shouldn't be trying to change in kids. And we go, no, no, you just need to figure out how to (sighs) converse with your peers. (sighs) Now, the problem is there's a lot of kids that are just like, I'll never be able to do that. But there's some kids that the strain is so hard that it causes an emotional disorder in itself. They become anxious or depressed or it crushes their self-esteem. Because they're like, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at the way that everyone expects me to engage in the world. And that's why the empathy test at the start of Blade Runner is a beautiful way to bring it in. Because what it does is it has this very formulaic, this is how we know if you're a human or not. Now, the the character (laughs) that blows up, he doesn't understand the test. He's like... What do you mean the turtle's in the desert? He starts with a tortoise. He's like, what's a tortoise? tortoise. He's like, you know, a turtle. We've got to be careful we don't do this with kids. We come in and go, this is the test that's on rails. It's not going to shift. You don't get it. You must have X. Oh you must have God. Y. And a lot of people, you know, the advocacy group within autism is one of the best in the world. And they will say, actually, we don't all lack empathy we have a diff- difficulty in expressing it and often it overwhelms us so, so we much. retreat from it yeah. because we don't have an outlet for it the way that society expects us to <sighs> express empathy, you know, and then you see the replicant explodes and shoots him because he's like, you're not explaining this properly. 
what are you talking about? And he blows up. But they've the replicants in this movie are the only ones we see that have any empathy. They're <laughs> the only ones that care for anyone else. Yeah. They're the only ones that put themselves out to protect others. It's, you know, and that's what we need to unlock in these kids. Instead of saying change, often we need to change. You know, we as a culture and society that are around these people. And this move is happening, but it's happening slowly. And I think we can do better. The other thing is that, like, there's a, there's a lot of advocacy coming out in the community now, but just because you have ADHD doesn't mean you need treatment. You know, there's a lot of people that function really well within that because they've been supported, they've got really amazing strengths that they've been able to unlock. A lot of kids with ADHD are really creative. It's a beautiful thing that they do that they can be distracted by the world around them because they go to places the rest of us wouldn't. They think about things differently. There's a lot of famous people, Einstein, heaps of people that have changed the world because of their neurodiversity. Sorry, I could see you're trying to ask me something. No, it's gone now. It doesn't matter. (laughs) No, the question was I was about to ask you about how do we make it easier, quicker. You're like, there's a movement. It's slow. It's, it's, it's slow. not slow, it's, it's yeah, progressing. No, 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 no. But it's like it is, how could it, it we as a slow. listener... It is slow because I'm still seeing kids in clinic where everyone's like, like, the kid needs to change. Uh, the pro- this is what as well I can see like... So taking away like the start of Blade Runner where he really loses it and someone ends up... Um, the doctor ends up dead, right? And I could see like kids being constantly pushed on a test and I can see that a kid just constantly like failing or bailing on it and then it's just like, ah, oh, their trouble. Or yeah. And it's that's, that's oh, I've seen, really I've bad. Seen, I've seen them. I've had the most amazing week of meeting families that are in situations with kids who have neurodiversity that they uh, they don't know what to do. They've been there for a long time because it's a long pathway to get to us. And the fact that they're still advocating and fighting for these kids uh, is phenomenal. It just inspires me. And I have seen that kind of all week and I see it every week, but just really this week. And yeah, we've got to, we've got to put ourselves in the shoes like we, we can, you know, with the replicants of they... They are being told the world is a certain way and they're being left out of it. Like mm. actually, literally, they're being sent to another world. Mm. But they come back and are hunted down. I don't know if you remember Deckard. Rachel says to her before she realises, I think, that she's a replicant. She's like, do you, do you hunt down all of them? And he's like, only the ones that cause problems. And that's often what happens in our society where like that kid is causing a problem. Yeah. So let's figure it out. What we should be trying to do is how do I make the difficulties you're experiencing smaller without saying stop thinking about the world this way, stop processing feelings this way. Like dyslexia is not about just try harder to learn how to read. It's a different way that that kid thinks, that all of their strain, all of the efforts, you can have them reading every minute they're awake every day for 10 years, that will not change. So we've got to be careful that we don't pressure kids into that because that's where mental illness comes from. That's where low self-esteem, that's where wanting to be different, feeling like you're left out. And the strain is too much for so many kids. So we constantly see that. You sent me a picture during the week of when I'm thinking really hard or something. I don't have much to say. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. You do this in this chat and I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm just, Wow. Yeah, so it's it's really challenging and I think that what I um what this is not for, you know, this is interesting because we know a lot of people listen to this podcast that are like thinking about better ways to support their own kids, but I imagine there's a lot of families out there that are just nodding along <laughs> that are like yeah. you're not saying anything I don't already know. I've got a child uh-huh. with neurodiversity. But all of us also need to be gentle with each other and say, like, we're all trying to learn this together. We are getting better at this. But there's a lot of hostility in the community about, you know, and it it is. It's it's, I struggle. I'm learning off kids and families, but it's not their responsibility to teach me. Yeah, okay, so completely. And I think coming back to kind of one of the general ideas of what we're talking about here in this podcast is that it takes – everyone around a child for them to be socially and emotionally successful, right? So when I hear this, I don't know, I've got to, actually got a question about sensitive kids after this, but I, I hear all of this and I'm like, okay, like I might not have, my kid may not um, 
in neurodivergent. I don't know. It's too early. All those sorts of things. I wouldn't mind listening about so many questions now. But I think it's important that I understand this because even if it's not my kid, it doesn't mean it's not something I'm going to be faced with or tasked to make a kid more successful, right? Like it could be my kid's best friend or it could be, you know, someone. So I need to know this. Is Definitely. What I'm to I at. mean, we, yeah, we're talking about like – we're talking about a lot of kids. 7% of kids have ADHD. Right. You know, autism rates in Australia are currently sitting at 1 in 60. You know, there's a, a – Twenty-two percent of kids will have a problem with their learning. Dyslexia, like this is a yeah. lot of this is a yeah. lot of kids. Like, yeah. and yeah, so you can be a positive contributor to supporting them in inclusion and understanding that yeah. you need to be adaptable and how you think about it. Also, you know, your girls are going to grow up in a world that's a lot more inclusive, but we will help guide them through that. We yeah. will kind of be the ones that are like. Yeah, they that child, you know, can be a little bit different in the way that they socialise with you and they interact with you and stuff, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. You no. know, that's the important bit. It's I was sitting in a talk a while back and we were talking about autism and um, we're saying about how, you know, a lot of kids, one thing kids who have autism will do is that they hand flap. Now, yeah, so they kind of flap their hands. Often okay. when they're excited or distressed or whatever. Okay. Now sometimes, and I'm not calling anyone out in particular, but sometimes people will be like, usually professionals, we need to stop that, <laughs> you know. And they'll do heart, very expensive, very intensive therapy of like the hand flapping needs to stop. But I remember a woman, <laughs> I can still remember her, in the group was like, you know, and I was like, a lot of these kids are doing this because it, it helps relieve their Release stress. Release valves, yeah. Yeah. And she's like, maybe more of us should be hand flapping. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, that's true. It's so weird. We suppress, not to keep riffing on Blade Runner, but a lot of the humans in Blade Runner are suppressing emotions. They're like, I want to demonstrate that I'm perfect. I don't want to show my feelings. I don't want to be vulnerable. Whereas often children with neurodiversity or the replicants in this movie are the ones that demonstrate emotions. You know, they're actually really good at expressing themselves and it's it's this funny thing and, you know, that's why we've got to be careful about what we're trying to do is make these kids' lives better, not make them more like us. Okay. I've just got – I've got another question just around you, – you kind of used all those big words – you know, not big Sorry. words. No, 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 as in like uh, neuro, neurodiversity and then it's like, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, autism, where do sensitive kids fit into this or do they not? I'm just trying to get my head around like all the things that are in and around Yeah, it, no, it's a really good question. So I think sensitive kids, if we think back to that episode and yeah. thinking about kind of some of the research, it's so 20 to 30% of kids have a sensitive temperament. That's temperament. So temperament, a bit like neurodiversity, is there's nothing wrong with you. It's just a set part about you. Yeah. Now, we okay. don't try and change kids' temperament, just like we don't try and change their neurodiversity. Gotcha. And there is a big overlap. Yeah. So, yeah, there will be kids who are very sensitive mm. that will also have neurodiversity. Gotcha. And that, is, that makes things hard for two reasons because you are more sensitive and we can go god that wasn't a big deal why was that a big deal for you like gotcha. that this happened and then you know for example the sensitive kid who is more likely to have emotional difficulties in a situation they're struggling with and then a child with neurodiversity who is like the world is really tough so i need predictability i need to know exactly what's going to happen and if you change a little thing like you know who's driving to school this morning mum versus dad I really struggle with that because they're tense and they're going, I need things to be predictable because the world is tougher for me because I have a sensitivity to the environment and then because of their neurodiversity and then they have an emotional sensitivity that they're, they're lo more likely to lose their cognitive capacity in something and that's what happens. And I've seen kids all week that are just constantly in distress because of that. Oh it's a bit God. like, you know, the, the other thing that Blade Runner does phenomenally well is and it's part of the you know the stereotypical film that it is is the use of light and what we see is you know i've intentionally picked the least quality version of this film which is the one that has the narration the detective deckard <laughs> harrison ford speaking through it for the scene but ford actually challenged that that was the worst one of it he said it was the worst bit about filming blade runner was that he had to do the narration yeah because he said that 
what the beautiful thing about without the narration is that it shows the experience of the replicants, the silences and the pauses, the flashing lights, the light, the darkness that comes through the whole thing. There's so much activity. A lot of people with neurodiversity go into environments and they are overwhelmed by them. And we're like, get over it. It's just a shopping center. But if you went into a place where every light was amplified, every sound was amplified, everything created tension in your brain and overstimulation, it would be very difficult to hear everyone telling you to get over it. My God, I have zero appreciation. I'm still stuck on the fact where you're like, they need predictability a lot of the time, right? And just like the different parent or a different pickup can already start to put them under a bit of pressure and then taking them to a supermarket where it's busy and it's lights and there's thousands of people, it just starts to build and then you might ask them to do something that they're not comfortable with and then they blow up and you're like, I could see just going, oh, it's bloody hell, can't get anything, you know, this is so, what we just want to do this, like it's not yeah, that tough. Yeah. And yeah, then you're like, It's always great to hear when you're struggling with something. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? Oh, I could just see it, I'm like, oh, for bloody So why hell. do they want predictability? Oh, just to make life a bit easier. Yeah, because there's threats everywhere. You know, explain that. What's so if you're if you struggle with certain elements and no one accommodates for you, there's a threat to your feelings, your sense of safety, your self esteem, your security everywhere. Because you're like, cool. Where's the next bit where I don't fit in? Where's the next bit where I see that I struggle more than everyone else? Because I've got told that I can't sit still because I can't move my hands. If I fidget, people are going to come over and tap me on the shoulder and say, Billy, stop stuffing around. And everyone else is fine. Yeah, stop stuffing around. Yeah, yeah. But what does it matter? What does it matter if they're fidgeting? What does it matter if he needs to do a hot lap of the oval every 10 minutes? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's weird. It's one of the most, and this is no criticism at all of anyone that works in education, but it's one of the most archaic systems that we have that hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah. I can see, but I can see, and and I know you appreciate this, but I can see how it manifests. I'm like, I am a father of two girls and all I want is for them to fit in. I just want them to not have those sorts of challenges early, which is not, I can see how it's not right, but also I'm like, I can't always be there and I just want them to. So I know you know this, but you don't want to change who they are to fit in. No, no. Mm. But I want to, I'd probably agree situations to kind of help them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it, it is a challenge though because, you know, imagine Evie, you know, does something really quirky that gives her joy. I've got to be careful that I'm not like, I need to stamp that out. I've got a lot of families that come to me and they're like, my kid does this and I, it really annoys me, I get really frustrated and I kind of, I can't get them to stop doing it and I have this really gentle, very slow moving process that I'm, what I'm trying to say is does it matter. This is a listeners will be like, this is not the time for that question, but I'll ask it. My daughter goes to daycare every day in her pajamas, and I worry that it's something that's like, am I one breeding the wrong thing? And it doesn't matter. I know it doesn't matter. I know you're looking at me, but I'm like, I want her to fit in, but she keeps wearing her PJs, and it's been for six months. I don't know why I'm bringing it up, but I'm like, no, it's a but great, it's that it's a example, example of like, so I just want them to fit that, in. That might like be like just a thing she's going through. I hate getting changed or whatever, but it might totally. not. It might be like, I really like the sensation of this fabric. You yeah. know, a lot of neurodiversity is around tactile stuff. It's yeah. like, I find these textures really abrasive to me. I find them really triggering for my emotions, you know, the yeah. same as certain things in the environment, sounds yeah. and stuff. But yeah, it might be, but that's a good example. And if yeah. you were like, she goes wild every time I try and get her out of them, but I do it every day to her and it's a battle and it causes her heaps of distress. I know you don't do this. No. This is why I'm comfortable saying it. I would say, what are you doing that for? Yeah. I, yeah. I, and yeah, no, I don't even think it's like I hadn't considered it and I still probably don't think it's neurodivergent. It's just a thing. Like it's just an example of as a parent, I just am like, when is someone going to notice that she wears PJs and points it out to her? And he's, I guess the question is, is she going to care? Is it going to matter? But to me, I'm like, to me, I'm just like, oh, it's an early, like, it's it's different. Yeah, it's just different and there's different levels of that. But no, no, I totally, but you, yeah, you've beautifully articulated that in that moment, but you need to make sure that doesn't come in and change her. 
that no. anxiety that you have of like when someone going to notice, will she be socially excluded? Like watch for that. But don't say, hey, like conform to everyone else in case yeah. they pick you out and say that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, yeah, conformity is the greatest vulnerability in our community because we don't unlock the potential that exists in all of us if we say we all need to be the same. Mm. Now, that's not to say that there isn't huge difficulties that exist within neurodiversity a lot of it coming from that, you know, requirement to conform, but it still needs a lot of support. A lot of kids with neurodiversity are much more vulnerable to mental illness mm. and to developmental difficulties and need help. But just like, you know, the kid with the glasses, we, we have to make sure that we're not just telling kids to try harder mm. or change. Yep. So, yeah, it's a really good point <laughs> and a real, real, real vulnerability. <laughs> Do you want to do? I've got a fair bit on the scene, so if you yeah. want to give yourself a break, <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, let's do the scene. So let's set the scene first. This is really important because I want to nail this. So this is Rutger Elroy is chasing around. Rutger, this actor's phenomenal. Oh, He's done amazing. some phenomenal movies, but he says that this fifty-second, forty-two-word monologue um, was the best moment of his career. And a lot of people in film, um, you know, get really annoyed when they say, you know, they constantly get asked. And he got asked for decades about this, what he because he changed it. We'll talk about him changing it. And he says, I loved it. He said, I loved constantly being asked about this. He said, it was this beautiful thing that I was able to unlock the poet in me. And the fact that such a small thing has had such a big impact on people is amazing. Mm. Now... There's a bit of a um, a false belief that he ad-libbed it. He didn't. It was a long kind of quote or soliloquy that he was going to deliver to Ford in this moment, the scene we're about to see, and he just shortened it. He said, this doesn't fit the character. This is It's too operatic. It needs to be shorter. Um, and he changed it, and he, he came up with the last kind of line, two lines of it, which we'll hear. What he's been doing is hunting Deckard, so Deckard was tasked with hunting him, but he Deckard's killed all of his friends, all of the other replicants. So he's hunting him and he's chasing him around this place. And the visuals in this movie are phenomenal. The soundtrack is phenomenal. The visuals are phenomenal. And watching Roy Rutger's character chase Deckard around is amazing. He just you know, he, and because it's it's changed. The cat has become the mouse, and Deckard is now fleeing him. Now, what happens in this scene is Roy sees himself in Deckard. The, the, the bridge is made. They see the similarities they have. Deckard sees it after him. And you need to watch the scene to really appreciate it because Harrison Ford doesn't say anything. I've kept the voiceover in for this scene because it's really important. Now, the dove is really interesting what Ford does is Ford tries to get away from him. Deckard, the character, tries to get away and he leaps over a building roof, but he falls short. And he falls short and he's hanging on. Mm. And, and Roy, the replicant, grabs a dove and jumps over. And he stands over him and we've just seen him standing over him. And he says, you know, isn't it hard to feel to live in fear? And then in the moment that he's slipping... He catches Deckard and saves his life. Now, what we've heard about replicants the whole time is that they're not human. Now, the only, the biggest bit of humanity that's shown in this movie is by the replicant to save him mm -hmm. as he's falling. And this is the speech that he delivers knowing he's dying. There's a lot of kind of Christ-like motives, the nail in the hand, yep. all this kind of stuff. But he's he has in his final moments saved the person that was trying to kill him, which is this beautiful compassion, pity, humanity component. But this is the scene that he delivers what he's, yeah, well, I'll talk about it afterwards, but let's, let's go to the scene of this beautiful um, monologue. Let's do it. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. 
like tears in rain. Time to die. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life, anybody's life, my life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die. Yeah, I get overwhelmed by that. It's a beautiful speech, and I think, um, yeah. So Ford, you know, tries to make that jump to save himself to salvation, you know, for his wrongdoing. And I, yeah, without getting too deep, I think we all try and make that jump and we all fall short, you know. And what we see with this fictional character is that he's saved. He's saved and he's forgiven. He's... He's been hunting these people down as they've been trying to fit in. They haven't been trying to hurt anyone. They've just been trying to be part of society, knowing that life is short. And in this beautiful final moment, yeah, Descartes is saved. And it's this great realisation that he has that. And we see after this scene, he goes off with Rachel, you know, and we see that they've come together. He's seen the humanity in the people that he thought were different and needed to be excluded because of that. And it's this amazing moment in time in film history that was captured because one actor thought, I want to put a bit of poetry in this. And, yeah, that's what we've got to realise is that these are all moments in time that will be gone and what we're trying to do is individuals is live the best life that we can, the richest life. You know, we hear about, you know, attack ships on fire on the shoulder of Orion and, you know, the Tenerhauser Gate. Um, these are experiences that Roy has had that mm. are the reason he wants to keep living. Mm. And he realises he's dying, but he saves another in that final act because he realises how important life, life is yeah. in all its differences. And that's what really neurodiversity is about, is about how do we realise that for some people their experience is different and they shouldn't be shunned because of that. Mm. Um, they should be celebrated in that and they should be given avenues. A lot of kids who are neurodiverse have no outlet for the way that they experience the world, the joy that they share. They are told this is the certain way you need to be. And that can save us as well. That will make our world richer. It will make, regardless of neurodiversity, all of our kids have more valuable experiences in their social interaction, the creativity in the world around them. So I'm not saying there is nothing we need to do to support these kids and you know treatments and therapy and all those things, but it's not the neurodiversity that we're treating. It's often the cause of the neurodiversity not conforming to what we expect of people. And it's yeah, I just I think that scene is is so amazing in Descartes' voiceover of like, you know, just I think he he just loved life so much in the end that he couldn't let. It slip away even if it wasn't his own. Mm. And that's, yeah, there's a beautiful message in that of just like celebrating everyone around us and supporting each other. And as I said earlier, there'll be a lot of parents with kids with neurodiversity that are like, you, pr you don't need to tell me this. <laughs> like, yeah, I battle every day against this, against yeah. a world that says my kid doesn't fit in and needs to change. Yeah, it's one of those things though, if you're not faced with it, you don't go through, you don't might. Um, miss the opportunity to learn it yeah but maybe your experience with ron and pj's makes you think about what if it was yeah. something that was more significant that made that kid's life harder does it really need to change is a good question to ask mm. or do we need to change 
Yep. And it's a really important bit about it. And I, um, yeah, I really hope that kind of people who are listening to this will feel comfortable sending in questions about like specific challenges that they have in the community. There'll be a lot of professionals that might have find this really difficult. I speak to educators all the time that are like, Billy, that's, I wish, I wish I had the resources to modify my environment so that the kids that, you know, this doesn't suit can be supported. And that's a really hard thing. The realistic element of it is that it's really challenging to modify environments. It's really challenging to say we're going to adapt for all the kids in this room that this doesn't suit. But we've got to figure out how to do that. And I hope parents kind of feel comfortable opening up and being honest about the experience they have because I think the best thing that happens in part two is people hear what's going on for other people. Mm. And that kind of shared realisation that you're not alone is probably one of the best things this podcast does. Yeah, it's a great prompt, Billy. So for people that might be their first time listening to the podcast, this particular episode, um, what we do, we do both podcasts in two parts. So the first part, we unpack the film and the topic that Billy's has gone through. And then the next time we do a recording, it's all based on questions that we want you guys to send us. So... You can send your questions, as Billy's just sort of referred to, uh, through to popcultureparenting at gmail.com or you can send it through our Instagram. It's a great place to send it, actually. That's uh, popcultureparenting on Instagram. Basically, spare no detail. Include as much as you can. Or if you've got a five-word question, send us a five-word question. But if it's uh, long and complex, uh, don't shy away from that. And just another one, we anonymise everything. So we just take names out and just use other names or remove names altogether. So you can um, include as much detail as you want and we'll remove that sort of thing. Um, but it really does make part two apps uh, everything. Like it's uh, like Billy sort of touched on there, it helps when you put in the detail to, to understand like other parents sort of go, right, yeah, okay, well, I'm not in this totally isolated position, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, and other kids are going through this, my kids are going through this or yeah, that's great. So, yeah, please send them in and, um, yeah, I hope, hope that uh, you enjoyed it, Nick. And I loved it. That, um, I learned that people I, find it valuable. Yeah, totally, totally uh, eye-opening. Uh, loved it. Um, love doing these sorts of topics where I don't know anything about it and I don't have a background or understanding or a lived experience, like super lived yeah. experience. Um, I find it awesome. So, yes, excuse some of the moments of silence <laughs> as it's all sort of sinking into this – this brain on a uh, on a Thursday morning in the early a.m. But I'm like, oh god, I have to re-listen to this one. Um, Billy, thanks very much for this week, guys. Make sure you send through those questions for part two. Um, awesome work, thanks, Billy.